a scene in uh, C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where one of the characters asks of Aslan, the God figure, a question, is he quite safe? The response from Mr. Beaver is this, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Ooh, said Susan, I, I thought he was a man, is he quite safe? I shall feel, feel rather nervous about meeting a, a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's what? Good. He's the king, I tell you. This interaction between Susan and Mr. Beaver in C.S. Lewis's uh, fantastical scene and, and environment of the Chronicles of Narnia really gets at the heart of the problem that Jesus confronts in our passage this morning. The Jews had forgotten that though God is good, he isn't safe. In other words, they had domesticated him. They had taken the God of the universe that we read about earlier this morning from Psalm 95, and they had made him uh, their spiritual mascot. They had confined his presence to the Holy of Holies and really decided, well, it didn't really matter what went on outside of that. Now, that's an overstatement, but that is really indicative of what's going on, at least in the heart, in the attitude, in the mindset of the Jews that Jesus comes upon in this passage in John chapter 2. This passage confronts you and I this morning as well, confronts you and me with the question of whether or not we've made the same error. Have we drifted from the worship that God desires from us? Have we domesticated God? Have we made God little more than our, our spiritual mascot? Or are we approaching him aware that though he is good, we can't forget that there's something about him that is not quite safe? Church, here's what I want us to think about this morning is this. Our good God desires our good worship. Our good God desires our good worship. And I want us to consider what that looks like through this interaction between Jesus and the religious leaders in John chapter 2. So take your Bibles and open them up to John chapter 2. Last week, we covered verses 1 through 11 with the turning of, of uh, water to wine and, and that first miracle that Jesus had done. Now, so far to this point, Jesus has kind of been in the background, even with John's baptism. You remember when he was talking to the delegation that was sent from the Jews to John to say, hey, who are you and why are you doing this? John's response was, there stands one among you whom you do not yet know. Jesus had been in the background. Even his first miracle here, there's a map up on the screen. I don't know if it's going to be super visible to you in the back row, and I apologize if it's not, but that's the Sea of Galilee there on the right-hand side of the screen. That's the northernmost body of water there in uh, the, the land of Israel. Cana is where those two lines go off to the, the, the left there. That's Cana. That's where that family wedding was that we left off last week where Jesus had turned the water to wine. So Jesus is still in the background, but this morning Jesus is no longer going to be in the background. In fact, he's going to step squarely into the spotlight and in so doing into the crosshairs of the religious leaders. Pick up in verse 12. It says, after this, after the changing of the water to wine, he went down to Capernaum. Now, Cana was over off to the side, and, and maybe you can see in the topographical region there, it was up elevated. So that's what it means he went down to. 
Because when it says down to, when we read it scripturally, especially in the Gospels and the book of Acts, we're typically not talking north-south, but we're talking elevation here. That's why people would always say, no matter where they were, they were going up to Jerusalem, because Jerusalem was on Mount Zion. So even if you were north in Galilee, you would talk about going up to Jerusalem, though Jerusalem was down south. So it says he went down to uh, to Capernaum. Now, Capernaum's up on the northern part there of the map, and, uh, and you can still go to Capernaum today, and when you go up to Capernaum today in Israel, which I hope, Lord willing, to be able to take a trip to Israel with our church family here, my goal is I'm putting it out there within the next five years. So hold me accountable to that. I don't know what's going to happen if we don't. But that's my goal. I want to get there. It's so amazing to be there and to be present where Jesus walked. Well, Capernaum has a sign on the gate that says the town of Jesus still today. And it's because during Jesus' earthly ministry, this was home base for him. Capernaum. This is the home of Peter's mother-in-law, which we'll find out more about in the Gospels. This is where Jesus kind of set up camp while he was there. But he's only there for a short amount of time. He's there with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they're staying there for a few days. Verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Again, went up. Even though he was up north, he went up to Jerusalem because of the elevation issue. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these away and do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remember that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Let's stop there for a minute. Jesus, it says, goes up to the Passover. The, the reason for this is the Passover was a significant event in the life of all Jewish people in general, and, and specifically held an obligation for all of the Jewish males. Every Jewish man, 12 years and older, was expected to be present at the temple during the Passover feast. So wherever you were in the land of Israel, if you were a, a Jewish male, 12 and over, you were expected to make the journey to Jerusalem to observe the Passover there on the Temple Mount. So Jesus qualifies, obviously, for that at this point in his life. And so he leaves Capernaum and goes up to Jerusalem for the Passover. The Passover marks a unique time, uh, time stamp in, in John's gospel. The other gospel writers really just record one Passover, and that's the Passover that takes place shortly before the crucifixion. John records three Passovers during Jesus' earthly ministry, and that's one of the reasons why we know that Jesus had a three-year earthly ministry before going to the cross. This is the first of those three that we read about here. There's another one that we read about in John 6 and another one in John 11. So he goes up to the temple. Now, the temple. What was the temple? This is a, uh, a place in Jerusalem that you can go. It's a model of the whole city during the time of Christ. And, and it's pretty amazing. It's built to scale, and you can observe what it looked like during that time. This is what the temple looked like during the time of Christ. This is Herod's temple. In other words, this is the second temple. This is the temple that Jesus went up to here in John's gospel. And so he goes up to the temple to observe the Passover, and when he comes to the temple, he finds that there are people selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and money changers sitting there. Okay, what is going on here? Well, what did people go to the temple to do? What were they expected to do? What was taking place at the temple? The priests were there to do what? They were there to offer sacrifices, okay? There were 
people that instead of bringing their sheep or their goat or their bull all the way from up north in Cana of Galilee or in the surrounding regions and and bringing that animal all the way down to Jerusalem with them, they would show up at the temple or they would show up at at the temple mount in Jerusalem there and they would buy an animal there and take that animal, animal to go be sacrificed. Originally, this all took place on the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is across from the temple mount, not in the temple courts. So originally, the people would come on the Mount of Olives, they would do their business there, they would exchange uh, their, their money for the animal, and then lead the animal into the city and onto the temple mountain there, they would offer it to the priest. This, since then, had moved into the temple. So, what's the problem with that? Well, let me ask you a question. Have you ever tried to find cheap gas near an airport? There's a reason why you, on the rental car, it's, it's, it's this gambling game that we all play, Right? where you're going, how close can I get to the airport before I fill up my rental car with gas before the prices just go sky high? Once they get you in the airport, like the, the, the gas in DFW is as expensive as it is out in California. And, and that's saying a lot. You can't find cheap gas there. Why? Because they know they, they've got a captive audience. Okay, if you were going to the Temple Mount to buy an animal for the sacrifice that you needed to make for you and your family, do you think they were giving you a deal on the Temple Mount? No. Why? Same reason. They knew they had a captive audience. And so those that were selling these animals or changing out the money, because that was the other thing they were doing, they were changing the money so that people could offer the right, uh, right kind of money for the temple tax that took place there. Uh, they would gouge the prices. Oh, what's the exchange rate on your, your, your money here? Well, it may be that over there, but on the temple mount, we're going we're gonna to raise it up a little bit because where else are you going to go? Oh, yeah, that, that bowl might cost you this much, you know, if you bring it from Galilee. But over here at the Temple Mount, we're going to charge you a little bit extra. And so out of their greed, they're lining their pockets on the backs of people who are coming to the Temple Mount to worship God. But there's something more than that, too. Because what happens here is they're doing this, we find out here, in the court of the Gentiles. The court of the Gentiles. What was the court of the Gentiles? Well, if you look at this picture, the, the big blank open space around the perimeter of the, the Temple Mount, that was, generally speaking, the court of the Gentiles. Not the whole thing. There was the court of the women inside that, and there were others. But these were progressive regions that marked how close one type of, of person could get to the temple and to the dwelling place of God in the Jewish mindset, the Holy of Holies there. And so the court of the Gentiles, as you might imagine, would create a a space where the Gentiles could only get so far. They could only come to the court of the Gentiles, and that's where they had to stop. They couldn't get any closer. And so in the Jewish mindset, what's the big deal for us to set up the the money-changing tables and the the farm-selling area here in the court of the Gentiles? Because the Jews and the Gentiles, you'll remember, they didn't really get along super well, did they? So they didn't think it was that big of a deal because it wasn't that big of a distraction to them. If the, the, the Gentiles were disrupted, what's the problem? So you've got them lining their pockets and disrupting God's worship. Jesus is not going to stand for this. Verse 15, making a whip of cords. Making a whip of cords. He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. This is a, a difficult picture of Jesus that we've got here. He makes a whip, and what does John say? He drove them. Who's them? The people selling these things, lining their pockets off the back of worshipers, disrupting the worship of people on the Temple Mount. He drives them out of the Temple Mount with a whip of cords along with the animals that they had. 
And then he goes beyond that. He pours out the coins of the, the money changers and overturned their tables. This is not a scene that we often think of when we think about Jesus, is it? This is a violent scene. And, and I think we need to feel that. Imagine, put yourself there, put yourself in the, the, on the Temple Mount on that day, and here comes Jesus, an unknown figure at this point. The majority of the people there had no idea who he was. And he steps foot on the Temple Mount, and he goes up to the, the, the business that's taking place that was just a white noise to them at this place because they expected it. It was a normal part of what happened every day there. And he goes up, and he makes the whip of cords, and he drives them out, and he turns over the tables, and he pours out the money. This is an angry Jesus. Paul says in Ephesians 4, 26, be angry and do not sin. What does that look like? We see it here from Jesus. This is a sinless, pure angry anger. Why? Because of his indignation of, over what was taking place. And we see some of that because of what he says here in verses 16 and 17. He told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. In other words, don't line your pockets off the backs of those who are coming to worship my father. And his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. The temple was a, a place that was intended to be a place of worship place of devotion, a place of prayer. This memory that the disciples has, have here goes back to Psalm 69, verse 9, where it says, For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen upon me. Jesus is the walking fulfillment of that here on the Temple Mount. The reproaches of God through the, the flippancy and the casualty of the, the people that were gathered there. The, the, that they would dare turn the Temple Mount into a place of profit for themselves and disrupt the worship of people that were coming to the Temple to worship. The reproaches that had fallen upon the Father were now being felt by the Son and zeal was consuming him and he was done with it. In Mark 11, we find a, a similar description or parallel account says that he wouldn't let anyone carry anything through the temple at this point. He was teaching them, saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. There, Jesus is quoting from Isaiah 56, 7. Isaiah 56, 7, the prophet says, through the Lord, speaking through the prophet, says, For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Back to the court of the Gentiles. This is why this matters. I want you to think of a man named Cornelius. Does that name ring a bell for anybody out there? Cornelius from the book of Acts. Remember, Cornelius was a God-fearer. A God-fearer who God sends Peter to to share the gospel with so that he can be saved. But chances are Cornelius would have gone to the Temple Mount. And as a Gentile, guess how far Cornelius could get in the temple? Court of the Gentiles. So if Cornelius, at that stage, knowing what he knew, which was limited, but he knew enough to know he wanted to worship God, if Cornelius wanted to worship God, you know how, how he had to do that? He had to go to the court of the Gentiles and worship God next to the cows and the sheep and the donkeys and, and everything else that was there that was disrupting his ability to focus on prayer and worship of the creator of the universe. And so it's not just that they're getting rich on the backs of the worshipers, but they're disrupting people's ability to worship Zeal for your house has consumed me. 
This is a unique picture of Jesus. I, I looked, and there's no precious moments reenactments of this one. Remember those porcelain figurines? Some of you may have them at home. Others of you may have grown up with grandparents that had them at home. There's no little cherub-looking Jesus turning over tables. In fact, there was a meme floating around recently, I don't know if you saw it, where somebody asked AI to recreate Jesus flipping over tables, and it was, the, the res, result was Jesus doing a backflip over the tables. So even AI can't conceive of Jesus doing what he's doing here, right? No, this isn't one that we think of very often. This is an angry, zealous, authoritative Jesus. And he was there to shake things up, but why? Because what he found there on the Temple Mount was a lack of reverence. What he found there on the Temple Mount was a lack of respect for his father. It was a lack of the right attitude that we should have when we come to worship. Church, it's important that when we come to worship, that we come ready to worship. That we come and we feel the weight of what we're here to do this morning. This is not a, a, a don't collect $200 until you pass go kind of a thing. This is the most important thing we do all week. Our first point this morning is just this. We need to come ready to worship Jesus. Come ready to worship Jesus. This is a school that we're here using, and, and we're grateful for it. Let me tell you something. This school thinks that it has a lot of really important things that it's here to do, that it's here to, to train up the, the future leaders of the world. That it's, you walk into one of their cafeterias here on campus, they've got all of the banners from all of the colleges that their graduates have gone to up on the wall in the cafeteria there. And it's impressive. I mean, you look at this list, and it's a who's who of these Ivy League schools and others, and this school teaches a, a classical education. That's great. You want to know the most important thing this school does all week long? It's host what we're doing right now. This is more important than anything else that takes place on this campus. And I don't say that out of arrogance. I say that because what we're here to do is to worship the God of creation. That matters far more than educating a child to go out and be the next lawyer or doctor or whatever it may be. This is the most significant thing about what we do. My sons play baseball. I've got five of them, four of them, sorry, adding children up here as we speak. We only have four, right? And Going to their games is one thing, right? You go to their games. This was in California last year with, with uh, one of our, our kids. and It's, it's a, a baseball field. You, you walk up, and there's nostalgia about it, but that's about as emotive as you get when you walk up there, okay? There's a difference between walking in there and walking in here. I don't know. Maybe this is just felt among men, but, but uh, ladies, maybe some of you have this as well. But every time I walk into a stadium, and you, you walk in the doors, and then some of them have the tunnels, and you walk through the tunnel, and then it just opens up, and there's the stadium. There's something awe-inspiring about that. I, I felt it from a little boy. I still feel it today when I go. And you walk out there, and you see the vast expanse of this stadium. You see this massive, majestic ballpark in front of you. And you see the, the, the crowd filling in, and, and you're caught up in the moment, and you just say, man, there's something significant about being here that's different than showing up at a, a little league field. If we feel that way about a baseball stadium, how much more should we feel that way when we come to worship God? 
to come ready to worship him. It, it, it involves a mental exercise to think about the God that we are worshiping. In Exodus chapter 19, we read about this God, same God. God is what we call immutable, right? He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He's unchanging is what that means. And we read about this unchanging God, the same God who today we are, have been offering our songs of worship to, who we've been praying to, the same God whose word we're studying right now. This God, and, and let's look at this God, Exodus chapter 19, verses 16 through 19, says this, On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. That's our God. That's the God we're here worshiping this morning. We need to feel that. And it's hard for us to feel that. Because this building's not shaking. There's no fire and smoke right now. If there is, we're getting out of here. But he's the same God. And he's worthy of the same reverence and respect and honor and the, 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 the trembling before God. And yes, our relationship is different now because of Jesus, right? We've been reconciled. He's brought us who were once far off, and he's drawn us near to him, and we have access. We can boldly go before the throne of God, but let's not mistake boldness for casualty. Let's not mistake boldness for a flippancy that says, oh, yeah, I've got church in the morning, so i, I got to plan the rest of my day around having to go do that. Y'all, we aren't exchanging money or buying any animals here at the church. We have our own threats that we need to be aware of when we come to worship. A few of them I want us to think about. Number one is we can come to worship distracted. Distracted. We're busy checking scores. We're checking X now, not Twitter, but X. We're checking stocks. We're checking a, a delivery that's supposed to come. We're checking our email. We're checking our calendar. In other words, we're not here ready to worship with our minds. We are distracted. We're, we're thinking about other things rather than focusing on what we're here to do, which is to worship God. Another thing that we can find ourselves guilty of is coming to worship derailed. Derailed. Here's what I mean by that. We've come to worship and, and we have unresolved conflict with our spouse. We're coming to worship this morning and we've got unresolved conflict with our, our kids we're coming to worship this morning. We have, we've got unresolved conflict with a, a friend, a brother, a sister in Christ. Jesus addressed that, right? When he said, if you're coming to worship and you remember you've got something against a brother, a brother has something against you, go and be reconciled to them first, then come. Part of the reason is he wanted your full devotion here and not your mind to be thinking about what she said to you this morning on the way out the door or how you were short with her when you were trying to get the kids ready to get to church this morning. It's part of coming ready. We can come to worship distracted, derailed. Another one, we can come to worship not dirt. That's a mistake. Dirty. <laughs> you see how that's a different, uh, changes the whole meaning. 
So I'm going to add proofreading to my ability to come ready to worship next week. I'm going to proofread my slides. Anyways, we can come dirty, not dirt. Here's what I mean by this. We can come with unconfessed sin in our lives. We can come with unrepentant sin in our lives. And we're not ready to worship because we've come with a facade. We're playing church and not engaging in what we're here to do. Finally, we can come to worship disengaged. Disengaged. And, and this is really an, an, the result of these other things. Because so often, if, if we're any of these other things, we will be disengaged. In other words, we sit here this morning and we think to ourselves, man, I'd rather be anywhere else but here. I'm just here to check a box and move on. Well, if those are our threats to our worship, how do we come ready then? What does that look like? I want to suggest three things. First, I want you to come prayed up, okay? I want you to come weekly praying for what you're doing here this morning and what we're doing here this morning. We say at Compass Bible Church, we have a genuine reliance on prayer. Can, can I just tell you, we believe in that. Can I ask you and, and plead with you, please pray for me weekly for this, for the preparation of the sermon and for the preaching event, because, man, I need it. Please pray for our worship. Pray for our worship team. Pray for the, the, the setup and the teardown. Pray for what we're doing. Pray for your hearts as well, that you'll be receptive to the preaching of the word. Pray that you will guard against all of those distractions that we talked about a moment ago. Come to worship prayed up. Second, come to worship planned up. Come to worship planned up. What do I mean by this? I, I mean this. Make Sunday morning easy. Make Sunday morning easy. So what does that look like? We had a, a prophet, masters, who used to say this, and other people have said it, but they say this. Sunday morning starts what? Saturday night. Sunday morning starts Saturday night. And what, we're, what that means is what we're talking about here. So m ladies and, and some of you men out there, I put myself in this boat, find out what you're going to wear to church on Saturday night. If it needs to be ironed, iron it on Saturday night. Get it laid out so that you make it as easy as possible. Remove every obstacle that could slow you down or frustrate you or trip you up between you getting from your house to church on Sunday morning. So come planned up. That's part of it. You've got kids at home. Make sure they know the routine in the morning. Make sure that they're up on time so that they can get breakfast, so that they can be here ready to focus over in kids' ministry. Come planned up. Finally, come prepped up. Come prepped up. We have a, a, a part of our website that says this weekend at Compass, and we update it every Tuesday morning. And on that page on our website, you can click on that link, and that's going to open up. It's going to give you a brief synopsis of what the sermon's going to be that weekend. It's going to give you the passage that I'm going to be preaching that weekend. It's going to give you our uh, kids, what they're studying that weekend. We even have a Spotify playlist that's got the worship set that we're going to be singing this weekend. And so what if we came prepped up so that starting on Tuesday evening, Wednesday morning, we're already thinking about what that next week's sermon is going to be. We're listening to the songs that we're going to sing on Sunday before we get there. We're talking to our kids even about what they're going to learn about before they show up at Kidsmen on Sunday morning. We can come prepped up. So that's how we come ready for worship, ready to worship Jesus because he's worthy of it. This was a lack of reverence. We don't want to come overly casual into the presence of God thinking that is no big deal. Well, Jesus was no longer in the background of John's baptism or this wedding up in Cana anymore. He was on the Temple Mount in the silence. I want you to picture the silence now in the aftermath. He's flipped over the tables. 
he said these things, and everybody's standing there wondering, what do we do now? Who does he think he is? Why did this man refer to the temple as his father's house? What authority did he have to possess uh, to do such things? And that's exactly what the Jews want to know. Look at verse 18. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? They're incensed. They should have been contrite. Because his zealousness for the, the temple was a zealousness that they should have had. His passion for the worship of the people was a, a passion that they should have possessed. But instead, you'll notice there's no contrition here. There's no sorrow. There's no introspection. There's no shame. There's no one of them pulling the group aside saying, maybe he's right. Instead, they just want to know, who are you? How dare you? What sign are you going to use to show us why you are allowed to do these things? There's the word again, sign. This time coming from the Jews, the opposition to Jesus in this instance. They want to say, what sign are you going to show us to show us that you've got the power and the authority to be able to do this? The ironic thing is here, they, they missed. The, the sign was what he had just done. And the words that he had just spoken had validated his authority, why they were... Uh, why was he allowed to do this? Because of who he was, because this was his father's house, because zeal for his house had consumed him. You have the Jews so concerned about the decorum of the temple proceedings and probably a little bit embarrassed that this outsider did what I'm sure they knew they probably should have done a long time ago. They're concerned with the temple, but Jesus redirects their focus. Look at verse 19. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Jesus responds to their begging for a sign. And he responds to their begging for a sign. He doesn't give his resume. He doesn't say, well, have you read Colossians 1? You probably haven't. It hasn't been written yet. It will be. I'm the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. I'm the head of the church, his body, that in everything I might be preeminent. That's who I am doesn't do that, of course. But he redirects their focus away from the brick and mortar building that they're standing in the shadow of. I love this scene. It's both amazing and tragic at the same time. Because they're in the shadow of the temple and Jesus is saying to them, you want to know who I am to be able to do this in the shadow of this building? Hey, you know what? Here's your sign. You want a sign? I got a sign for you. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it again. John clarifies for us in verse 21 that he was speaking about the temple of his body. The temple of his body. Why is Jesus uh, qualified to be the temple of, of God in his body? Well, we've read about it earlier in John's gospel, John 1.14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The temple was there, and what was inside the inner part of the temple? The Holy of Holies. And what was supposed to be taking up residence in the Holy of Holies? The what? The glory of God. Now you've got the word of God in which we see the glory of God. So this is why he is the temple of God. They're in the shadow of the brick and mortar. Jesus is trying to get them to understand it has nothing to do with this. It has everything to do with me. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it again. You want a sign? I'll give you a sign. The sign that the Jews were looking for, they would realize when they nailed him to the cross. 
they would understand when there was an empty tomb that they couldn't explain later on, although they didn't really fully understand it. That was going to be the sign that they were going to get, the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ, and that's what he's talking about here. Of course, they're not going to track with him. They're not going to follow him. In verse 20, they respond to him incredulously. The Jews said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. What they're referring to here, this was oftentimes referred to as Herod's temple. Because Herod, in 20 BC, had begun a reconstruction program on the temple to fix things that needed to be fixed with the second temple here. And so they're hearkening back to that time period, saying it's taken 46 years or thereabouts to build this temple, to get it to where it is. And you're going to tell me that you're going to tear it down and then raise it in three days? See, they're not following Jesus to where he wants them to go. By the way, that's going to be a theme in John's gospel. We're going to see that with Nicodemus. We're going to see that with the woman at the well. We're going to see that in John 5. We're going to see that throughout John's gospel. Jesus is going to try to get people to go here, and, and they're going to stay here. And that's what happens here. You're going to raise it up in three days? But, John says, he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered he had said this, and they believed the scripture that Jesus had spoken. On whose authority was he doing these things? His own, because it was his father's house. The shell that they were so concerned with was nothing compared to the reality of the presence of God standing right in front of them. Why were they so concerned about the temple? Because it was the dwelling place of the glory of God. They were staring at the dwelling place of the glory of God. Y'all, when we come to, to worship, we need to come ready to worship. But the other thing that we need to do when we come to worship is remember why we're here and what we're here to worship, who we're here to worship. We're not here for the trappings. We're here for Jesus. Second point this morning is this. Come chiefly to worship Jesus. Come chiefly to worship Jesus. In other words, he is the point. He's the point of everything that we're doing here. In Scripture, we are as the church referred to as the bride, and he is the bridegroom. Imagine if uh, at a wedding, a, a bride walked down the aisle to meet her groom, and then when she got down to the front of the aisle, she turned around and looked at everybody that was there and just said, aren't the flowers so nice here? Isn't this so, doesn't the pastor look so good today? Hey, you know what, his welcome was so good. Wasn't it? It sounded really good. Did, uh, is the sound okay to you guys? Is it a little bit too loud for your taste here? Did you like the, 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 the entrance that we had? Did you like all that? You would wonder what's wrong with the bride. Because when she gets to the front of the aisle, who is she supposed to be consumed with? The groom. Church, we are here to be consumed with the groom, not all the trappings surrounding the groom. Not the stuff that's, that's there that's supposed to complement what we're really here to do, which is to worship Jesus. You know, so if you come to church and maybe you come to church because you like the worship, or maybe you come to church because you feel obligated, or maybe you come to church because you want to appease your wife or your husband, or maybe you come to church because, you know what, I've got to serve today, or maybe you come to church because you just always have, or maybe you come to church out of a sense of, of guilt, or maybe you come to church simply because there's a, a fear of change because what would happen if you didn't? You know, some of those things are okay. It's okay to go to a church where you like the worship. It's okay to show up at church because, you know what, you're, you're there to serve, and people are counting on you to be there to serve. 
It's okay to go to church because you like the preaching. It's okay to go to a church because the doctrine is sound. But listen, none of those things are the ultimate reason why we go to church. All of those things are simply there to point us to Jesus. All of those things are there to simply make us love Jesus more. And if those things become the ultimate thing, then we've got a problem. Because they're simply a handmaiden to the groom. We come to worship Jesus. You think about this building, this temple building. What was the temple there to do? It was not to be an end in and of itself. It was there to point people to God. It was there to be a conduit through which people could come and meet God. The tragedy in this scene is that the temple was almost always, was always rather meant to point people to Jesus, and they missed that completely. Let me explain what I mean. The temple was meant to be a place for the dwelling of the, the glory of God. The, the temple was meant to be the place wherein people went to offer sacrifices to appease the wrath of God. The temple was meant to remind people of God's holiness and their separation from him. That's why there was the Holy of Holies. The temple was meant to be a place where men came to meet with God, okay? So all of those things, dwelling place of God, sacrifices offered, God's holiness and our separation from him, and that that's the, the dwelling place of the, the glory of God, or rather the place where, where men came to meet with God, okay? Now let's think about Jesus and how Jesus fulfills the temple. Jesus is now the dwelling place of the glory of God, first. Second, Jesus is the place where the ultimate sacrifice would be offered that would put an end to all sacrifices to appease the wrath of God. Third, Jesus is the very embodiment of God's holiness, and he's the bridge that overcomes our separation from that holiness. The temple was there to remind us of his holiness and to put that stark separation in view. Jesus fulfills that by being the very embodiment of the holiness and the bridge to overcome the gap between God and us. For the temple was the place where men came to meet God. Jesus is the place where God comes to meet men. And so the temple was always meant to be about Jesus, and they missed the, the forest for the trees. They, they, missed, they, they, they looked at the shadow when they had the very substance in front of them. And church, we can't do the same thing. When we come to worship for these various other reasons of why we are here this morning and not somewhere else, that's fine and good so long as it's because it makes you love Jesus more. And if it doesn't, I'm not doing my job. We're here to love Jesus. We're here to worship Jesus and chiefly to worship Jesus. You know, it's not going to be there in the new heavens and new earth, right? The temple. Why? Because of what we're talking about right now. Because Jesus is the fulfillment. Revelation 21, 22, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. No temple because we have Jesus. We come chiefly to worship Jesus. Finally, this morning, these Jews wanted this, the sign. And Jesus would eventually do many more signs than just this. This was one of them. But there's a group that attached themselves to Jesus. And it says in verse 23, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name and they saw the signs that he was doing. Remember, the sign was meant to communicate something deeper, something more. 
And it says here, they see the signs and they believe Jesus. All right, we want to stand up and applaud that. That's a good thing. Many people believed Jesus. To quote Lee Corso, not so fast, my friends. Thanks, college football fans out there. Why? Why not so fast? Look at verse 24. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them. Because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in a man. See, the problem here is there, there's two types of sight. There's the sight that's beholding and then perceiving or understanding. That's the one type. The second type, and that's what we find here, is just observing, just witnessing, being amused. And that's the sight that we have here. And you say, well, how do you know that? Because of Jesus' response. When it says that Jesus did not entrust himself to them, what it means there, what the Greek's doing here is it's playing on the words. They believed Jesus, but Jesus did not believe in their belief, is literally what it is. Jesus did not trust their trust in him. Why? Because he knew that it wasn't for the right reason. Yet they wanted to follow Jesus because they were amused. They were entertained. They were like, wow, this guy's pretty powerful. No one's ever stood up to the Jewish leaders like that. I want to be around this guy. I want to see what he's going to do next. See, the object of their faith wasn't Jesus, but Jesus' power. And so they weren't genuinely following him. They were following him for the benefits that they might get from following him. And Jesus, in his omniscience, knows the heart of man and did not fully entrust himself to them the way that he did his disciples that he draws near to him. When we consider what we're doing here this morning in worship, we need to keep in mind the why behind our worship. And here's the thing, y'all. If we're not following Jesus because of what he's done for us through the cross and the empty tomb, if it's not the driving force behind our discipleship, we're not genuinely following Jesus. If we're talking about the good worship that God desires, our good God desires, yeah, he wants us to come ready. And he wants us to come chiefly to worship Jesus. Third and finally this morning, he wants us to come genuinely to worship Jesus. Genuinely to worship Jesus. How many of our churches are filled with people not seeking Jesus, but seeking the benefits of Jesus? Seeking to be entertained by Jesus. Seeking to have a, a, a soothed conscience from Jesus. The most egregious form of this is the whole health, wealth, and prosperity gospel movement. That says, you come to Jesus and you're going to get all these blessings and you're going to have health and you're going to have wealth and you're going to have prosperity. That is not why we come to Jesus and it's a false gospel. We don't come to Jesus for what Jesus can do, but what he's already done. What has he done for us? Well, let's consider a few things. He saved us from eternal damnation through dying on the cross for our sins. He's delivered us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of light. He's become what Scripture calls the propitiation for our sins, meaning he has satisfied God's wrath against our sins. He has removed our guilt from us as far as the east is from the west. He has given us his full righteousness. The righteousness of God, as Paul calls it in 2 Corinthians 5. He's overcome death so that we will overcome death. He's ascended to the Father where now he ever lives to make intercession for you and me. 
He's preparing a place for us that where he is, we may be with him one day because he's also going to come back for us to take us to be with him where he is. And he's given us the Holy Spirit to be with us until then. That's why we follow Jesus. Because what he's done, we've already received the greatest benefit and the greatest blessing that we can from him, and that is salvation. That is the cross, and all of these people want not him, but what he might be able to give them. And we're going to see that again in John's gospel. But church, we don't come to worship for what Jesus can do for us, but what he's already done for us. And y'all, that's what we're preparing to do right now as we wrap up our time together this morning, as we observe communion together. When we genuinely follow Jesus, the, the driving force behind that, as I was just saying, is the cross and the empty tomb. That on the cross, he took our place, bore our punishment, satisfied God's wrath against us by dying in our place for our sins so that we can be forgiven. And then three days later, he rose from the dead so that we too will overcome death and live with him forever. What we're about to do right now, there's nothing mystical about what's happening. These elements that are being passed to you, it's a, a wafer and it's some grape juice. What these are, are symbols for us to use to remember what Christ has done for us. It's a memorial. And so as our ushers come down, there's going to be music that's going to be playing here in just a moment. But as our ushers come down and, and pass these elements, I want you to think about and prepare for what we're about to do. We talked about three threats to, to communion. The first is a lack of conversion. This is for believers, what we're doing right now. And so if you're not a believer, just let the, the tray pass. The second is a lack of confession. As you listen to the music, as these elements are passed, spend time confessing sin before the Lord. And then finally, a lack of concentration. Let's make sure we're focused on what we're doing here, remembering Christ's sacrifice for us, the price that was paid so that we and I can be forgiven. And so as the music plays, as the elements are passed, I'll come back up here in a moment and we'll take these elements together.
statement that is made in the Chronicles of Narnia when it says he's not safe. I don't want us to misunderstand that. What this represents gives you access to him. What this represents changes your relationship with him. He's not an angry, disappointed father who is sitting in heaven ready to, to zap you. He's your heavenly father. He's the one that gave Christ, who was the reality of the presence of God, the glory of God, walked among us, went to the cross for us. What this represents gives you access to him. As the apostle Paul says that, that we now can draw near to him and refer to him as Abba, Father, that intimacy of that familial relationship because in Christ you are now sons and daughters. And so we don't come to worship in some sense of, I, I don't want you to feel a distance from God. I just want you to feel a respect and a reverence that he's due. And this is one of the things that we do towards that end as we take these elements. We'll take the bread and then afterwards we'll take the, the cup together. But the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, as he was addressing taking communion together, wrote on how we should do this and said this, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you, and this is what we're doing. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take and eat. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's drink together. As often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I'm going to ask you to do something this week, and that is hold, hold on to this and take it home with you. In fact, go ahead and look at it right now, if you will. My guess is for 98% of you in the room, unless you're just really good at, at, at draining a cup, there's a little bit left in your cup, isn't there? Maybe leave that in there. And here's why. What we've been talking about just now, the, the reason why we genuinely follow Jesus is because of the sacrifice of, of Christ on the cross on our behalf. Scripture describes that as, as propitiation, that he satisfied God's wrath against us. The Old Testament depicts the wrath of God this way as a cup that's poured out. Remember Jesus in the garden, let, Father, let this cup pass from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. See, on the cross, Christ experienced the Father pouring out the cup of his wrath upon him. And though you and I take this cup for communion and, and we, we drink it, and yet there's a little bit left there in the bottom. Here's the good news. When we go and stand before the Father, whenever that day comes, there's nothing left in the cup of his wrath for us because of Christ because of Jesus. And so we devote our whole lives to him, to follow him, to worship him the way that we've been talking about this morning because of that. So maybe hold on to it this week. I'm gonna pray and we've got one more song before we finish up. God, we love you for Christ. We love you for the sacrifice that allows us to come and to worship you, to approach you, not out of fear and dejection and 
the sense that you are disappointed and angry with us, but to approach you accepted as your sons and your daughters, not by our own merit or our own wealth or our own achievements or our own righteousness, but simply because of Christ. Father, I pray that you would help us to feel the significance of this, of what we do here week in and week out on Sunday mornings. It's so much more than a cultural phenomenon. It's so much more than a reset on our week. It's so much more than an opportunity to curry some favor with you so that hopefully things go better for us this next week. This, God, is the pinnacle of our creation, of our existence right now. This is a foreshadow. This is the rehearsal for what we will be doing for all of eternity with brothers and sisters in Christ from every tribe, tongue, and nation throughout all of the ages. Lord, this is that shadow that should cause us and create in us a yearning for the substance of the full reality of being with Jesus. And so week in and week out, Lord, help us to come ready to worship you. Lord, help us to come chiefly to exalt and worship Jesus. And Lord, please, I pray that every single one here would be or would become a genuine worshiper of Jesus, that we wouldn't be deceived into being caught up with all the trappings and miss the purpose that we wouldn't be here to say, okay, Jesus, what can you do for me? But that we would be here to say, God, thank you for what you've already done for me. And we praise you and thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.